Coming up next, the bookening takes a fun detour into literary theory. Hey everybody, welcome to the booketing. Time for me to wake up, folks. <laughs> We're doing this episode early, and my phone says it wants me to... Snooze a bit more? It's allowing me the option to snooze a bit more, but Brandon, I'm here talking to you about literary theory, so that's really probably the best equation for me to get some Zs in, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, folks, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk about literary theory. Why are we going to talk about literary theory? Because it's a... Fun, the best fun you could possibly have with your day. <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. It's the best fun you could possibly have with your day. I, gu- I guess I should introduce us before I introduce what we're doing. My name is Nathan, your humble and obedient host. That's Brandon, yeah. who's a baller of reading. Yep. And there's an empty chair over there. What happened? Oh, Jake just couldn't stand the fun. He just couldn't stand the fun. Yeah. That's exactly right. The big boil in his head actually exploded with tension. That's right. It's like that meme of that guy whose head explodes. Yeah, exactly. It's like the meme of the guy whose head explodes. People probably know what I'm talking about, right? I think so. Is that from Scanners? Yeah. Or The Fury, maybe? One of those. There's a couple of famous head exploding movies. So, yeah. Anyways, is this going to drop near spring or fall break? Probably around fall breakish time. Yeah, probably. I have no idea. I've not been in school in a long time. I have no idea when fall break is. Yeah, it'll be early around there. Fall break. So, just throw this on. Repeat all th- fall break long. You don't need to go to amusement parks. You don't need to go to a city. You probably can't anyways. You're probably all locked in your houses right now. Yeah, exactly. What's better than being quarantined with literary theory? Nothing. R- really nothing. No. Here's the thing. We talk about this all the time on the bookening and we throw around words ourselves like deconstruction yep. or, you know, Brandon's always talking about semiotics and sasur and... Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, probably, maybe. Somebody's done his research. <laughs> I will say I think semiotics is by far the most fun of any of these things. Yeah. I, I actually, mean, it's just actually kind of enjoy it. Looking at patterns to language and realizing yeah. there's something deeper than the surface structure going on. Yeah, exactly. So, well, there you go. That's, that's a little teaser. What's you know your what appetite? Be, you know what would be fun? What's that? I just thought it'd be fun to do little, like little four-line poems on each of the lit criticisms. So Ooh. Do that lit theories. That's a really good idea. By the way, folks, you should check out Brandon and Nate. It's now Nate and Brandon. Nate and Brandon, write and draw. We won't say why. No, we won't. But if you work with the acronyms, you can probably figure it out. <laughs> it's Nate, draw and write. Nate, wow. Okay. Nate and Brandon, draw and write. Yeah, we do some fun things with definitions over there. I've been having fun with that. So, maybe just to throw the bookening a bone and to tie in with this, I'll do some for lit criticism when yeah. this episode drops. That, that'd be fun. So, basically, that's an Instagram account at Nate and Brandon, write and draw. Draw and write. Draw and write. Sorry, wow. Write and draw is the reason we got rid of it. Trying desperately to give you a plug here <laughs> and I, I can't do it. <laughs> eh, it's not the greatest name. <laughs> Something in my... It's pretty hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like I'm being passive aggressive though. I, I really like it. It's cool. Check out... What is it again, Brandon? Nate At and Brandon, draw and write. Draw and write. And Brandon writes poetry. Friend of ours who's a teacher, a high school teacher, uh, art teacher draws yep. and you guys have teamed up and eventually you're going to try and get a children's book published correct? that's right yeah we had one we've had some of the animal poems we want to get published go up we've got ideas for other books that have come out of this collaboration so mm-hmm. be fun yeah it's really fun you should check it out you should follow it on instagram a lot of cool art a lot of cool poetry but my favorite thing there, there that i think they do brandon's actually quite a good you may not know this if you listen to the bookening but brandon is a good writer of light verse of like children's verse or or even just kind of the epigrammatic stuff that yeah. you know kind of 18th 19th century wits i've got, uh, I've got to say i was kind of surprised to discover this about myself too <laughs> but it comes pretty easily to me <laughs> yeah and so what he does he specifically does these definition poems kind yeah. of in the style if you know ambrose bierce is one of my favorite things in existence ambrose bierce's devil's dictionary yep. which is a wonderful little cynical book that you can find where he has these mocking definitions of things ambrose bierce most famous for probably an occurrence at owl creek yeah. the frequently anthologized famous twilight zone episode based on it so everybody would read that and just think satirical genius yes yeah, <laughs> <laughs> humorist well actually if you read any collections like that's his one kind of straight 
horror story. He's written, he wrote a lot of dark stories, but most of them had a pretty humorous. Well, it's surprising though. It'd be like reading a Poe story and finding out that it's actually Mark Twain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Bierce is best, I think, as a wit. And His so Devil's Dictionary is amazing. Yeah, Devil's Dictionary is just amazing. I'm yeah. trying to think of a random definition from it. I can't think of one, but I laugh every time I read one. Yeah, I mean, ever since I got married, I think of his definition of marriage a lot, which is a society consisting of one master, one mistress, and two slaves, comprising in all two. Yeah. Or something like that. So, so it's that sort of it's, stuff. It's that sort of thing. That's actually not one of the better ones, but it's one that occurs to me since I've been married. And so, anyway. Brennan writes these great little uh, poems that define things. Like, yeah, like sententious. Sententious? Do you know your sententious poem off the top of your head? Or? Yeah, I do. Sententious means a man who tries to speak of virtue with the guys. He quotes old poetry and sighs. His friends avoid him, so he cries. There you go. Pretty and great. So, I try to work in a little bit of outside stuff about the people who would actually be that way. So, uh, sententious is someone who's given to moral expressions or aphorisms. Right. So, you just think of that sort of person, you hanging out with a sententious person. That's what it would be like. There you go. And Brandon wrote a great Which is why Jake's not here because he's sententious. Is Jake sententious? Yeah. He's over there crying. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows that all Jake ever does is (laughs) spout moral aphorisms. Yeah. Yeah. And judge us. (laughs) And judge us. Quietly. Yeah. Jake is pretty sententious. It's actually his hip that doesn't lie that's sententious. Right. Jake himself is just the greatest guy, but it's really hard to hang out with that hip. It doesn't lie because it's a sententious. Well, Brandon can hardly avoid being a poet. (laughs) (laughs) This is great stuff. (laughs) Why are we talking about lit crit? Well, (laughs) yeah, because you said maybe you'd write some poems. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I can't forget to do that. And and that'd be pretty great. Anyway, all of that, a long way of saying we throw around lit crit theories and we make fun of things or engage with one way or another, usually antagonistically engage with things like feminist theory or post-colonial theory. Yeah. These things come out of broader movements and most of them are pretty lame. Some of them are helpful and interesting. Yeah. And so, maybe it'd be helpful to know what we're getting to. Mm-hmm. So, really, lit criticism didn't become anything until the 1800s when, and you had the two most famous early liter- literary critics would have been, well, arguably, Samuel Johnson was one of the earliest. Mm-hmm. Because he did his studies on Shakespeare, right, Samuel Johnson? Yeah. yeah. Like the- Like the person bi- the biography's written. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Who everyone's read the biography, but very few people have actually read anything yeah, written by Johnson. But I've read something. his- You say that and then I say, well, I've read- But I've read. <laughs> I've read his uh, studies on Shakespeare and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they're fantastic. But um, real lit criticism didn't begin. You had Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was one of the earliest ones. Mm-hmm. Surprises people to hear that, I think, usually. But he- Gave a whole expose, not expose, exposition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) He brought him down. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) On fantasy and imagination and kind of drawing the line between that was really influential for how we interpret the romantics. And then probably the most famous one would be Matthew Arnold. He Mm -hmm. really kind of established the field. And I think we'll talk more about those guys today. Yeah, actually. And so, where we're going is then literature, literary criticism kind of actually didn't begin until the guy I can't avoid talking about ever. And I wish I could, but I just can't. Donald Trump. Because he's that influential. Yeah, Donald Trump with his art of the deal. Right. <laughs> he also wrote a little known book called The Art of Literary Criticism <laughs> Yep, by Donald Trump. He's, he's actually a secret genius. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and Brennan can't stop talking about him. He's wearing a yeah. red hat. He's got signs yeah. in his. That's what he says about War and Peace too. Huge guys. Huge. 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 <laughs> Which I mean, what more succinct, <laughs> accurate criticism could you get of that book? It's brilliant. It, it is huge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, um. Sorry. T. S. Eliot. T. S. Eliot. Of course. T. S. Eliot. Famed of... author of the musical Cats. Yes, that's right. <laughs> he kind of he he made. Uh, Literary criticism, respectable. And so, a lot of people would, or at least, maybe not even, respectable might not be the right word, but he made it, um, he established it as a as a craft, an art, something you could pursue in your life. He wrote a lot for the literary journals, and there's probably somebody out there who's going to say, well, well, you didn't think about this guy and this guy, but I'm, I'm talking about like a foundational figure people would know. Broadly speaking, yeah. Broadly speaking. And a lot of the movements that would come out of him, you would have the very conservative movements, you would have the death of the author movements, you would have which were actually just kind of ideas that other fields took up or ideas of literary theory took up. But he, new criticism came out of him. Mm -hmm. So, we'll talk about new criticism. We'll also talk about structuralism, which is where semiotics is bound Mm -hmm. up with structuralism. We'll talk about post-structuralism, also often known as Mm post-modernism. Post-structuralism, post-modernism are very 
intertwined. We'll talk about and deconstruction and deconstruction, which is very like tied into all of that. that. So you have the structuralisms, post-structuralisms, postmodernism is kind of in deconstruction is kind of uh, the overarching term. Well, so we'll talk about those, and we'll talk about the posthumanisms that come out of that, and the multicultural studies, and then another big movement would be new new historicism that mm-hmm. we'll have to deal with. And so those are all coming up next time. And new historicism, we talk all the time about post-colonialism because it's hard not to when you're yeah. talking about any kind of 18th century that comes out of that. As far as the liberal fields of study, I'm, I have some fondness for new historicism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think new historicism did some good stuff. And I like Stephen Greenblatt, even though I don't agree with a lot of his theories. But I do believe that a historical understanding, it goes back to Lewis, in a way, was a new historicist because Lewis believed that you had to understand the world of the literary, mm-hmm. I'm going to hate myself for saying this, but whatever. I'm going to hate myself for saying a lot of things on these episodes, people. Just bear with me. Yeah. He, you had to understand the world of the literary artifact. In mm-hmm. other words, you have to see the thing as a created object within a, per, a specific time in history. Mm-hmm. If you see it that way, then you realize all the influences and stuff that go into making that thing. Now, we can't talk about new historicism without understanding its undertones of Marxism mm-hmm. and stuff like that, because you can see how Marxism would influence that sure. way of thinking. But what I like about it is it saves the uh, the novel, it saves the short story from the cold vivisection of new criticism, mm-hmm. which came up with, well, let's forget the author and let's just look at the thing in, as it, in itself. and. Mm-hmm. Stephen Greenblatt, even though he'll look at all the other things that influence the author, he always at least takes the author into consideration too. Right. And so- and Which I, is something we are very pro on the- Yeah, I just, I just think it's foolish. The whole world of criticism that came out, even though I love Penn Warren and those guys, because I think they made the best textbook on poetry, I, I still d- highly disagree with the way that they think it's just that literary analysis is about you and the object. Mm-hmm. It's just a cold and dead- interaction, it forgets that the author's there trying to influence you in some way. Right. And that's a dangerous way to read. You, If you start reading that way, you, that's how you get into the sort of silly, that one brand of silly classical thinking that I don't like. Right. Which is that, well, it's by Homer, therefore Homer, you know, and Homer was great. Therefore, we don't question Homer. It's actually very simplistic. It's, it's mm. funny because it's a very, it's a simplistic way of looking at literature that's also a tried to they try to present it as a very sophisticated way of looking at right. literature, but you know, if you're just thinking, "Oh, it's like you're hearing from a, 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 a god with a small g," right? Every time you read Shakespeare or mm-hmm. Homer, and it's just it's a form of idolatry. Yeah, is what it is. Yeah, that's, I was about to say that word. So, yeah. Well, what's interesting about all of this is I listened to you talk already. Is I think people should pay attention for this because it informs how these movements work. The reactionaries of yesterday become the conservatives of today. You know, yeah. something that starts out as fancy fancy becomes foundational later. Somebody like T.S. Eliot, for example, who, you know, is the bedrock of a lot of conservative thinking throughout the 20th century, was really reacting against something and pretty out yeah. there in his reactions. And, and you'll see these waves of people respond, you know, the pendulum swinging from one side to the other as people respond to one thing and say, oh, we don't want to do that. And a lot of what seems very out there, new, crazy in one era. This becomes boring and ordinary. Boring, ordinary, and the stuffy conservatism that people then Because deconstructionism was like with, is it Barbara Johnson, I think from Harvard, those deconstructionists who took, well, this may be three episodes, Mm -hmm. I don't know, because you have to also understand Freudian psychoanalytics, but also how Lacan and then Zizek and all those guys adapt it and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And they're actually, they are reacting against T.S. Eliot and against Penn Warren and against Cleanth Brooks, the guys who were behind the new criticism. Right. Um, and at a certain point, people got tired of deconstructionism because it's yeah. you can't actually say anything. All you can do is attack with it. Yeah. And so then we get to the when I was in, when I'm in grad school, you have affect theory, which came up and was very big. And again, all of a sudden, the author started to kind of matter again, so that. You know, with my dissertation, I'm thinking through issues of like with the author, is the the author's presence within literature and people are doing it now. It's like this is something that's interesting to people again. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. You have things like Black Lives Matters, these movements where agency suddenly is mattering again. Right. And so, people are tired of the whole dead. Now, what in your, so T.S. Eliot, those guys, they were reacting against something which was taking that too far. And so, you would sometimes get criticism that was just a biography of the author. Right. And you would never think about the... The, the text book, itself, the text, yeah. or, or you would always be reading the 
text like with psychoanalytics and mm-hmm. stuff like that through the mind of the author and like, can we analyze the author through this? And he was getting tired of that. So, there was good pushback there. Right. But finding that balance and not swinging too far the other direction, then there'll be interesting histories that get involved. So, like the new criticism will get taken up by structuralism and then Roland Barthes will write his famous Death of the Author essay, mm-hmm. which will be taking those things from new criticism and then making them postmodern. Right. And so, it's, it's just fascinating how all this develops. We talked a lot about this with our, I think with our episode on uh, The Moon and Sixpence. Mm-hmm. We talked yeah. about how a lot of the ways that we read, our practices of reading come from very dangerous, deep-rooted ideas that we don't want to question. Right. And so, a lot of the things like, for example, it's fascinating to look at the classical movement because the way that it treats literature nowadays in certain branches of it is very postmodern and very deconstructive and very new critical. Those things were never conservative. Right. right? It's just, so that's the way they treat things. While the sort of living understanding of literature was what they were reacting against. Right. But that's always been the way. So to kind of transition into talking about the old way of looking at books, that's always been the way that literary criticism was handled. Like that's Mm -hmm. how the Romans and the Greeks would have thought about it. Right. As you interacting with an author. When you went to see a play, you would have thought about Shakespeare, the author, or playwright presenting you a play. Right. There was this interaction between you and the thing. And the creator of the thing. That's why so many of these guys had to flee during the 1500s in the Renaissance because the Catholic Church knew that they were the ones responsible. Mm-hmm. They weren't burning, just burning their books. They were burning them. Well, just uh, <laughs> before we get there, just to give a funny <clears throat> recent example, a lot of fanboys and fangirls are in a tizzy right now about trying to decide questions of death of the author in a very visceral way because their favorite author, J.K. Rowling, has come out as yes. transphobic. And so they all have to ask, a question, not academically, but in a very, very rich, visceral way. Can I divorce Rawling from this book series that I like, that I grew up with, that informed my childhood, that felt magical and special to me? Uh, and that doesn't mean that we're disavowing J.K. Rowling just for that in the same way. No, 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 we are not. Yeah. But it's funny to watch a bunch of, you know, and so, and so I don't actually usually like this sort of conservative thing, but Insofar as it is fun to watch a bunch of butterflies <laughs> self-destruct, it's, yeah. it's kind of fun to watch them try and figure out, boy, J.K. Rowling stands to make a lot of money if we continue supporting her and we really don't like what she has to say, but we really love this thing that she created. And so, can we- You see this all over the place. Divorce her from it. I was reading a fascinating article about the head of the Poetry Foundation right now. They're trying to get rid of him. He mm-hmm. actually had to just resign, actually. Or- and there was another guy who's having to resign. It may not be the Poetry Foundation, but it was one of these major journals. And the reason is, is because he allowed a fairly liberal poet to publish a poem, but he's a white guy writing from the perspective of a black person. And so, therefore, suddenly, you know, he gets, what are they called it? Canceled? Canceled, yeah. So, it's this whole cancel culture and how that's bringing agency back into it, but in a very toxic, mm-hmm. unhelpful way. Right. Yeah, what I always tell my students and I think should be the guiding principle of these episodes is that if you're not learning to read discerningly, if you're if the practice is not that you need you need to think of yourself as having the power to be discerning and judging while you're reading something and you're interacting with an author that's trying to convince you and you're trying to either allow him to persuade you or push back. If you're not learning that, then you should be looking for other avenues of learning. Right. So, that that's the only thing, the only only text, the only book that we approach that way is scripture. Mm-hmm. That's because it's the word of God. It's inspired and, and true. And the only discernment we have to work there is against ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And our reactions and how we are reacting negatively to that because that can teach us perfectly. Every other book we read, you have to have discernment. Mm-hmm. There's no other book out there where you don't need to practice some discernment when you read it. It's yeah. just foolishness to think that's the case because every author has had sin. And every author has the power to manipulate, especially authors that were big enough to be remembered. Right. So that's really what the booking is all about. That and Jake's work. Yeah. Um, so in these episodes, and we'll see how many episodes we get out of this, but we are going to start by tracing the history of everything before the 20th century. Just how did people think about approaching a text? How did they think about literary criticism and that sort of stuff? And then we're going to get into the 19th and 20th century. We're going to define all those terms. By the end of these episodes, you will know what structuralism is. You will know about semiotics. You will know about deconstruction. 
we just want to give you a foundational understanding of all that stuff so that you don't have to be intimidated by it. If there are words that you think you know, or maybe you've never actually had to learn about them, or maybe you know all of this stuff and you just want to hear two good friends talk. I don't know. I don't know why you're listening. I can't. I'm not, I'm not responsible for our readers and the way that they deal with the artifact that is the bookening. That's right. That's their problem. We're not responsible for that. No. Divorce, uh, death of the podcaster. Death of the podcast. <laughs> Me and Brandon actually just drank cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> we will be dead. We will be dead. Here pretty soon. We are taking this very literary. Or, well, very literary. See what I did there? My accident. Yeah. All right. So, we are going to start today with a history of literary theory, literary criticism leading up to all that stuff in the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries and 21st centuries. So, Brandon, you were just sort of starting to sketch things in with the Greeks and Romans. Uh, where do you want to start? Attempts to understand literature and put it in its place, it's it's not new. I think that even back when Augustine wrote The City of God, and we have a friend who could speak to this, but he was talking about literature. Actually, the oldest literary criticism, you can go all the way back to the Greeks with mm-hmm. Aristotle and Plato. And Plato was writing his books where he was criticizing, like in the Republic, he criticizes the poet. He thinks that the poets deal in fancies and imagination, imaginings, and therefore can't be relied on like the level-headed philosopher king. Mm-hmm. And so, they should be kicked out of the city. And so, he actually started the war with between philosophy and poetry. But there, they were thinking about <clears throat> the important point being, they were thinking about what it does to you, like what it does to you morally. Mm-hmm. And that's always been a way that people have thought about literature is what it does to you morally. You really don't have the disappearance of literature shaping you and your tastes and your feelings until you get into the modern era. Mm-hmm. And we see when we see that die is when we get to this bizarre world we live in now where people can, the way they try to make the argument that you can basically watch whatever you want mm-hmm. and you shouldn't judge people for what they watch and take in. I'm thinking of the little prescript, whatever you want to call it, the little prelude to the picture of Dorian Gray, book yeah. that we should do one day where Oscar Wilde just, Wilde just kind of writes this little screed about all art is useless, all art is meaningless, all art is meant to be beautiful. Truth is beauty and beauty is truth or whatever he writes at the end of the Grecian urn or to a Grecian urn. Which is weird because Dorian Gray is nothing if not a moralistic, (laughs) a book with a really obvious moral to it, but he feels the need to affix this little prologue where he says, don't worry, there's no moral. Yeah, and so you get that in the 1800s, you see that with the Romantics, and we've talked a lot about them, but we'll have to talk about them again some today too, because that's where we get this idea come into literature, but uh, yeah, I just really want to stress that nobody has assumed that books just stand alone and don't do anything to your morals up mm-hmm. until you get to them and you get to the romantics. There may have been subsects that I don't know about that some historical, some person with a knowledge like this expert in that period of history might be able to bring, but those are the anomalies, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the broad scope of history there would be as soon as you get to the Middle Ages, and I'm teaching through the Middle Ages with some young students and it's been fun. But it's also known as the age of faith for a reason because everybody there looked to the church to define things for them in a bad way in many cases. But mm-hmm. in other words, people thought what one life needed to be interpreted for you. Two, you couldn't just trust everything. Mm-hmm. Right? There was only one thing you could trust wholly and fully and that's God, unfortunately, was the church right. at the time too. And that led to the things that needed the Reformation to right. make, to make them better. Mm-hmm. But all that to be said is that the idea of literary criticism as an art, even though it kind of started with the Greeks, really wouldn't come up again until you get to the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Even then, it was mainly scholars looking back with humanistic ideals about the values of Greek and Roman authors and needing to be able to read them again. It was not a practice with people writing books about it really until you get into the birth of what we would think of as the modern academy. So, before that, were people, like, obviously, Aristotle wrote his poetics which lays out the principles of what a good play comedy or drama should do and again there he's even thinking about emotions like Mm -hmm. he's thinking of poetry as an action that is complete and of a certain magnitude through pity and fear uh, affecting the proper purgation of these emotions Mm -hmm. so again he's looking at the way it is structured which i mean obviously that's how he had a very scientific mind he wanted to structure it and show how it was put together Mm -hmm. but then he was also looking at the emotion like how it affects you right Right. And that was the argument. Does it affect you? So, he was kind of debating with Plato there and that 
And we don't have to get rid of all poetry, right? Actually, mm-hmm. poetry does a good thing. It purges bad feelings out of you. Mm-hmm. That was the debate, like with Plato. No, it makes you think about them in the first place when we should be speculating on these ideas of the good and the beautiful transcendent ideas. And Aristotle was responding to him and saying, no, actually, it just purges them out of you. But all, and again, it's all about feeling and what it does to you, being very concerned about that it could have a negative effect. Mm-hmm. So then through the Middle Ages, do we have people actually just writing about what writing theory, writing about what literature should do and why it should do it? Or is it just incidental to larger studies of philosophy? Or It'd be theology? incidental. Yeah, people aren't really thinking of, I mean, literature itself wasn't that important for people to take that seriously. Well, they've understood a thing called literature, the concept of a corpus of written things that we um, I mean, they would, they would have me. understood that there were things like stories. And so, when you get to the 1200s with your lays of Arthur, and they would have understood those to be things. But um, I can't think of an example of like a literary critic or where we would see someone who would think of literature as a body that you would study, mm-hmm. right? Not until you get to the Renaissance where you had the rebirth of knowledge and these things coming in. Uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that. I mean, poetry was always looked at as something that had forms that people could draw from. And it was a field of, it was an art and a craft. How did these things get codified then? Who were the gatekeepers? That's an interesting question. I think it really kind of just slowly started to happen, but largely in the Renaissance. Um, so, you would have had guys like, um, or Erasmus might have been one one who would have done this. But guys along Erasmus's field, mm-hmm. you don't like have the great names that anybody's going to be looking to as like, these are the... There was one, and I can't remember his name, there was one poet that uh, one of the queens in the Renaissance made like, he was. she was fond of him, and so she made him- Shakespeare? Yeah, Shakespeare. Who was it? I can't remember that guy's name. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it was Shakespeare. No. <laughs> she, but she made him like the head of one of the universities, mm-hmm. the head, head of one of these projects. There were guys like that. Maybe Cedric was his name. Mm-hmm. I'll look it up that and sounds, we'll say it the next- That sounds familiar. Yeah. We'll say it the next episode, but- so, there have been guys like him, poets that she would have looked to as like, this guy should be overseeing the um, new humanitarian endeavors mm-hmm. and they would have given money to these projects. But really, like as a field that people would study, even by the time you get to Coleridge, it's not really codified yet. It's kind of when you get to the modern university that you would see it as a field that people would actually go to school and study. So, Matthew Arnold right. would be a very significant figure in that development. But yeah, there's not like a watershed moment like, oh, now literature is something we study. So, it's just a kind of accumulation of traditions. And- yeah, after you get enough field, people are enough things there for people to look at. And then slowly you realize, well, there can be scholars on this and mm-hmm. they can have a job doing this sort of work. But during that period, it would have been more, this is art, this is a craft, this is stuff that we look to as things that we enjoy. And there are things that we want to preserve. And so, you would get the sort of librarian mentality. And then out of the library, you would have guys, scholars who would study it and know it and teach it. So, that's kind of the way it would come about as a field. Would that mostly be attached to to monks, to monasteries, to religious traditions during the... Not during the Renaissance. Before the Renaissance, I mean during Uh, medieval. Yeah, you would have a lot of monks that were doing that sort of work, but even literature to them wouldn't have been of that much interest. Right. So, to be a poet wasn't something you could look at as a full-time job until later on. Even Chaucer still had to have his job with in politics, right? Mm-hmm. He couldn't sustain himself full-time being a poet, and that was in the 1300s. Right. So, one of the ways he did work, and this would last for a while, and this was also the way that, like, the artists during the Renaissance would become where they could sustain their lifestyle as a painter would be through patrons. Mm-hmm. And so, like, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, they were famous patrons of the arts, especially Eleanor. So, she was one of the reasons that we have the courtly traditions still alive today. That would have been in the 1200s. But again, that whole tradition would have been seen more as an art to enjoy. And then like in the courts where everything was pretty licentious, they wouldn't have really been thinking about what it was doing to you. Just the fact that it could do something to you was pleasurable and it was also refined and elegant and it was educated. Those things were very important too. So, that's where you would get like guys like Petrarch and uh, Dante coming out of those sorts of traditions of thinking of poetry is something that nobles are supposed to enjoy because it's something that peasants can't enjoy. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't have like a great scholar sitting there and 
like we think of a professor of literature today or as someone who would have a career as a literary critic. You really don't get that until you have a bunch of scholars who are studying the same things and can then debate and argue and teach one another. Right. And so, and that really doesn't come about until the 1800s. But you do get ways of thinking about literature that happened before then. But I would say the dominant two ways of looking at books and what they do. And so, this was, I guess, it was just a more broader way of looking at the humanities. That's kind Mm -hmm. of how it started, was just looking at the humanities. And we're coming out of the Middle Ages and these guys, they wanted to preserve what had been lost. And a lot of this started in Italy. I mean, there's lots of interesting history that ties in. You know, you have the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire with the Muslims moving in and sacking Constantinople. A lot of those guys had to flee. This was in 1453. They all had to flee and come over to Italy. And when they fled, they brought a whole bunch of art and life with them. You had the retaking of Spain from the Muslim dynasties in the 1400s as well. And with that, you got a lot of Muslim culture that was taken by the Spanish conquerors. So that introduced a lot of new life and stuff into Europe at the time too. And so you just had all this stuff that was happening, people both fleeing and then people conquering and getting new ideas and new art was the bedrock of of what would become the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. But all that to say is it was more seen as a, so you would get books that were trying to catalog and preserve and understand, uh, like I said, a librarian mentality. But also the humanitarian idea of trying to say these ideas are good enough in and of themselves and we should understand these ideas and respond to them. It was a dangerous proposition at the time because the Pope was very powerful and the Pope didn't want you to have certain ideas that would be outside of what the church would teach. Mm -hmm. And so it was also, as these ideas were coming out, a pretty dangerous time to be a thinker. uh, A thinker. (laughs) thinker. Dangerous time for thinkers. (laughs) It was a dangerous time to be a thinker. So you would have, uh, scholars would have to run. Erasmus had to spend the last part of his life in exile. Like we, Erasmus is a fascinating figure. We think of him sort of as the villain to Martin Luther. We as reformed guys. As reformed people. But that's not really... the truth. Mm-hmm. Erasmus was fighting the Pope before Luther was. It was just Erasmus didn't go along with Luther's Reformation. Yeah, I'm he's not- one of those interesting guys. I don't know who I'd compare him to, but he's one of those guys that was ahead of everybody, but also he ended up standing poised between every movement. So he couldn't really be a part of the Reformation or the Counter Reformation, but he saw the sins of the church and stuff and pretty he, like, accurately. And he wrote some excoriating things about the Pope. Like, so he all- kind of ended up being. Shrugged off by both sides, though, at the yeah. because you know, yeah, because he wasn't willing. And I'm not saying that Erasmus was a great guy, but I am saying he was an interesting figure. Yeah, and cer- certainly was, more than just Luther's antagonist. But he was kind of the representative of what a lot of the humanita- humanitarian defenders would be. You had a lot of the guys. So I just listened to a book called "A World Lit Only by Fire," mm-hmm. which was a fascinating history of the Middle Ages up to the Renaissance. And so they were talking about like what happened when the humanitarian scholars had started to come into power, they would be one, they would want to read these old things, these books, and sometimes the popes would be okay with it. But if it like brought in ideas of, well, let's get the populace reading, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't like that. Or if it brought in other ideas like, you know, maybe the world isn't the center of the universe, like the famous stuff that's surrounding Galileo, then they wouldn't like that either. So, the whole life of the mind and what that would lead to at the Enlightenment, which was not always good, but still that's kind of where we would see the birth of the ability to even think of literature as a subject, mm-hmm. right? And so it was already always rooted in that sort of struggle of between speculation and pioneer mentality of the academy mm-hmm. that we are now like going into new worlds and new places that people have never gone to before. So when you said earlier there were two schools, that's what you meant. There were kind of two two ways of looking at this. It was- yeah, and so that would be the humanitarian way. Mm-hmm. But then there would also be, yeah, that's what we were getting at, right? I mm-hmm. kind of got off track there. But so that was the humanitarian way. That was where that was kind of rooted there. That would be eventually grow into the the academy. Right. But it wasn't the academy like we would think of it today. There was struggle. It was weird. It was dangerous. It was if you could find a patron to defend you, yeah, you'd be okay. It's tied together with the politics of all these city yeah. states and yeah what, but st- and you still had that old which is a good tradition of wondering you know is all this stuff good mm-hmm. like should you read aristophanes mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't right like, there's some crude stuff in aristophanes mm-hmm. and that's fair enough like but all these humanitarians they were like well you know it's we need to preserve what we've written we need to have the life of the mind that's when the life of the mind became very important was during this period and that there should be some freedoms attached to that and it would dominate even through shakespeare's time like mm-hmm. you would maybe one of the great first kind of literary critics would be John Milton mm-hmm. when he wrote his Areopagitica. 
even then he wasn't like writing a book about literature itself and the practice of what literature does. Right. Right. Uh, but he was fighting censoring. Mm-hmm. So he's fighting censorship laws under the Jacobin Empire or the Jacobin Kings. That would be more. So I guess one way to look at it was would be that the humanities. So one point would be the humanities were more what literature studies would grow out of. Mm-hmm. And it would always be a struggle between those who wanted freedom to have a life of the mind and those who wanted to limit it. Of course, being where we are in history, we always look back at the people who were fighting for the life of the mind as the heroes. Right. Forgetting that sometimes the guys trying to censor were doing it to protect people Mm -hmm. because they didn't think that everybody should just have access to everything. Right. And that's a long argument. We're Americans, so we think that we should just be able to do whatever we want and nobody should protect our feelings and tastes. Mm -hmm. And that is a dangerous thing to allow the government and state to do that. Right. But still, you know, I hope as fathers and elders and pastors out there. I hope you are trying to protect your people. So, there is some truth to it. Well, even where we agree, like, for example, Martin Luther is the hero of the people that run this podcast. But man, Europe erupted in violence thanks to his little 95 theses. Ideas have real consequences and the people die and yep. people become depraved. I mean, these these things have power. Yeah. So, you can't just be some self- You can't be cavalier about you can't it. Be, you can't be someone who has the power to affect things on a grand scale and then just, like you said, be cavalier, just say things that are- and then just pretend like you don't have the power to do that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just over there. You're just over there saying things like, and you don't know why people are taking you that seriously. So, anyways. Yeah. I mean, it, we don't have to draw too many- obvious modern parallels but i mean look (laughs) the idea of black lives matter whatever you think about it it makes a big difference to people's lives to their welfare yeah to the way that our country is run and to whether people live or die and so that was kind of the sin that was behind what was happening with the guys who were trying to defend the right to do this in the first place the humanities the universities right and they were struggling with the church they were struggling with the state which was very involved with that sort of with a church mentality and it was just a very different time. And so, you would get guys like John Milton who would fight with censorship and stuff like that. Then you would have the other side, which were these the guys who were creating. Mm-hmm. That's where you would get Shakespeare. That's where you would get the... Even though... So, I guess one way to look at it is even though you had that struggle happening, you still had money and money and money with all the trade and the opening up with like Magellan of access to the Spice Islands and all these things which were changing the world. Mm-hmm. And with the changing of the world, you got a lot of money coming into England. You got a lot of money coming into Spain. And with money comes more leisure time. Right. And with leisure time, people want to have something fun to do. Right. And so, that's where you get the birth of more access to theater. You get Gutenberg as well. Mm-hmm. Easy, cheap pamphlets could be written. You could get the folios, the quartos of Shakespeare. And that's where you begin to get easy access to writing too. And as people began to write, they realized, well, people don't just want plays. People like stories. And that's where you slowly, I mean, it's... You know, you look at the birth and the rise of the novel, it's inevitable that somebody like Cervantes was going to realize, well, I could just kind of tell a body funny tale about a knight, a guy who thinks he's a knight, and people are probably going to buy it and think it's great. Mm -hmm. He did, and it worked, right? Not too much innovation there. It's just like it was inevitable that was going to happen. People have liked to tell stories all the way back to like Beowulf and before that. Right. So, as soon as you were able to write them down and sell them, it was going to happen, right? It's like there's not a mystery to it. Yeah, Cervantes. Come on, dude. Yeah. You needed the right guy to do it, who right. had the genius to write it. Sure. But as soon as that person had access to pen and paper, mm-hmm. it was going to happen. So, then to kind of tie all these threads together. So, you had poetry, you had these things that could be looked at and studied. So, first to have literary criticism, you have to have something to study, mm-hmm. right? At that point, you had all the old, so you had classics as a field. It's like one of the oldest fields. That's kind of what the old humanities were, was just classics. And when you say classics, you mean? Like Roman Greek theater. Mm-hmm. You have to r- realize that like during the Middle Ages, nothing was really getting written. Right. Yeah, the printing press, that gets invented. You have these guys who finally can put pen to paper, start producing. New art forms get created. You get the novel, you get the short story. Not the short stories we know it, but at least stories that are produced. Then you get like magazines that start to get written with like Addison and Still when they, in the late 1700s when they're writing theirs. Little journal magazines, which would become like what we know as the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. You get philosophy that's slowly developing as well with like Kant and those guys thinking about, well, we have all these things that we enjoy. Now, let's kind of think about how do they work. And so, then you get people speculating on taste. Where does taste come from? How do we know what beauty is? And the idea of beauty is as old as Aristotle and Plato, but now they have to think about beauty in the world of mass market 
publications mm-hmm. and with now, you know, poetry is not just for the highly educated, but everybody has access to it, right? And so, you have kind of just the slow trickle of art become just a fire hose of art. And that's when you get the people who came from that, I, the line of the life of the mind mm-hmm. suddenly realize, okay, we need to start doing something about this. We need to start studying and deciding what is best, what is good, what should people remember? And that's kind of where you get the earliest stages of literary criticism, mm-hmm. right? So, you get guys like Samuel Johnson, who decides to write his books on Shakespeare and some other poets. And who was Samuel Johnson, just, just in case? Oh, he was kind of a renaissance man, mm-hmm. but people would know him mainly from the book of his biography written by Boswell. Mm-hmm. Genius, he was one of the earliest compilers of a dictionary. Right. And uh, that's probably what he's most famous for, before Webster, I believe. Yeah, he just... He just wrote a dictionary. Yeah, so, but he was very interested in language and he wrote some poems himself. He was a poet, but really what he's most famous for is that biography and also then just studying the authors and these poets to show people why they should appreciate these guys, right? And so, by the time you get to the 1700s, you have enough history of people writing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You have the world of the novel slowly changing. You know, we're still a few years away from Austin and the actual flowering of the novel, but poetry and theater have long flowered, right? And you have a lot of stuff you can look at. These guys begin to think, well, we need somebody to be tastemakers, right? We need somebody to help us understand all this stuff we have now, Mm -hmm. right? Back when it was just the humanitarians fighting the church, it was easy enough. It was the Greeks and Romans. They were fighting about morals and fair enough, they should. Now you have a lot of new stuff too. So, you need somebody to help both understand what has come before historicize literature and also help people understand philosophically what should they do with literature? Like, what, how should they understand it? Yeah. Inevitably, that's going to become a highbrow art. Inevitably, it's going to become sort of the intelligentsia telling people what they should like. And whether they like it or not, they're not going to be able to tell people who's going to be remembered, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, if you watch kind of Shakespeare gets remembered because he's the guy who was remembered, right? Right. And so, eventually, people are just like, okay, here's why Shakespeare's so great. Let's just tell people why because he's not going to get forgotten. Mm-hmm. So, and there's actually more history behind that, but that's not a, this is not a Shakespeare right. podcast. We've done plenty of those. But these guys, so you have that and then also then you have, if, if that's inevitably what they're doing, they're going to have to start thinking about what literature is and mm-hmm. why we should appreciate what we appreciate. And that's like the birth of literature, literary criticism right there with people having so much they have to deal with, having the old ways of thinking about things changing. And then you have these guys who are kind of in, you know, universities are getting respectable. You have guys who they are particularly interested in poetry and literature. They have to think about, okay, why do I like what I like? While this old peasant Joe over here just wants to read the dime novels, right? Mm -hmm. And how can I show him that this is the best? So, you have Kant thinking about like, okay, what's beauty? Then you have Matthew Arnold thinking about, okay... Like, what is culture versus anarchy and how, okay, so here's culture. It's the production of these arts. Here's the idea of the, you know, when when creeds and beliefs have started to die and crumble, poetry has to take its place. Mm-hmm. If it's going to take its place, we've got to think through what's the best, right? right? And I've got to be able to teach people what's the best. And so, that's the concern. And inevitably, like I said, if that's the concern, telling people what's the best, you're going to have to systematize a theory of what literature is. Mm-hmm. And that's where literary theory is born. Kind of out of that struggle and tension. Right. Does that make sense to yeah. people? I think so. Crawled yeah. out of the primordial oh. ooze of... Yeah. I mean, so it just became it became something out of necessity. It became like the novel was inevitable after the printing press. Literary theory was inevitable after literature became wide mainstream. There's just a bunch of stuff to sort through and you have to regulate it and you have to understand it. And so, here's... Yeah, well, there's people who either just love it and so know it really well and therefore want to teach it and want to teach people why they love it. Or you have other people that have some other axe to grind. And when we get to other forms of literary theory later on, we'll talk a lot about that. Because mm-hmm. I think that a lot of literature today, is one, one interesting thing that happened, this is not to toot my own horn here. Mm-hmm. But I, when I was in grad school, I was in a class, we were talking about Faulkner, mm-hmm. Absalom, Absalom. And the teacher after, so we had this long conversation and I was talking and then you know, the students were talking. And then after class, the teacher took me aside and he said, so one of the students over there, she, she just came up to me who well, I was pretty good friends with this teacher. Mm-hmm. And she said, she said, you're, she said, you were weird. She said, you actually just want to talk about the books while everybody else here kind of just wants to talk about politics. Mm-hmm. And that, so in other words, that's kind of where I, that was eye opening to me 
because it's true. I I do just like talking about literature and what it does. I'm sympathetic to those kind of critics. Mm. You have other people that want to talk about the intersection of literature and politics and how they can use literature to talk about politics. And that's where you, I think, lose like poetry today is kind of dead mm-hmm. because that's all it. They just only want what's politicized. Yeah. And so, we'll get to that next episode. Mm-hmm. But originally, it was founded in this struggle over two things. What is literature? Can we understand it as a, as a category? That's kind of what Coleridge with the Romantics was doing. He was trying to say, okay, we have this new thing. Literature has always dealt with feeling as well. Poetry has dealt with feeling. How are we supposed to understand it? And so, he started talking about the power of imagination and the value of imagination and the imaginative life and kind of really being foundational there. His really system, systematic book on poetry that people can go and find. I think it's probably accessible online pretty mm-hmm. easily. I'm sure. He was a strange romantic. He really didn't have the same ideas as all the others, but he was very much about let's or, let's approach this life of the mind again, the life of the mind with the humani- humanitarian ideas, human, human, hum, humanities ideas, not humanitarian mm-hmm. ideas, humanities. Mm-hmm. I think I keep saying humanitarian, but I mean humanity. wanted to bring food to Africa. Yeah. <laughs> about the life of the mind, about poetry and what it can do. And he was just very interested in like, okay, here's what it does and hoping if he could kind of trace out imagination and feeling and kind of be very scientific about it, that maybe then he could help other people both understand what they appreciate, also what they should appreciate, and other poets understand what they should aim for, right? Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of what he was hoping to do as a poet critic. As this, as it developed, you would also get the artists themselves who would start to kind of shape the way that people think about literature. And that's one of the ways it would form in the early 1800s because the Romantics in responding against what they thought was bad about the 1700s with its cold classicism, they would develop theories of why then they wanted to do literature this way. Right. And that's just because, you know... Early in its life, people weren't thinking of it that way. Like, I don't think Shakespeare was sitting there thinking about, okay, here's my theory of playwriting and why I want to do it different than Marlowe. There wasn't enough of it yet. They would look to one another and like write their like criticisms of style and stuff, but you didn't have guys gathering together as movements until the 1700s. That's where you see the birth of movements and then you kind of get manifestos they would write or just ideas they would write and develop together. So, you would get Keats who had his idea of negative capability. Or in his poems itself, writing like truth is beauty, beauty mm-hmm. truth. In other words, where they started to try and speculate about what they thought literature should do. Mm-hmm. And that would kind of dominate the 1800s. And so, the poets themselves would start to become like literary theorists. And that later the literary analysts and theorists could actually draw from these ideas of what they were trying to do, the way they interpreted their work. And we've talked about this, like the Romantics had this idea of the artifact itself being this pure thing that just accesses feeling better than any other way, any other form of writing can. Mm-hmm. So, it's better than philosophy. Like, they're going back and debating with Plato without, maybe they actually meant to debate with him. I don't know. But definitely debating against the way of living at the time. And so, they all went out to Lake Geneva together and, you know, had their kind of hippie lifestyle that they led, which led to misery and death for quite a few of them. But then that would get taken up by other poets like the Pre-Raphaelites mm-hmm. later on where they would kind of adapt that to their purposes. It would get over to America where you would have William – where you would have um, Walt Whitman say, you know, poet is the new priest of the world. Mm-hmm. I guess the point I'm trying to make is you had kind of two schools, the ways it was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. You had the movements of the artists themselves, which was kind of a new development, schools of thought. You had schools, but it was mainly in painting earlier on, right? Now you had schools of literature as it became kind of a codified form that was responding against other things. And then you had the critics who both studied what they were doing. Um, So, John Ruskin was Mm -hmm. a big fan of the Pre-Raphaelites and also heavily influential in what they became. And so, you would have this interaction between the artists and the creators and the scholars trying to study them. And I guess that's kind of the way it still happens today, right? Mm-hmm. You still have like Andy Warhols, those guys who come up with a philosophy of why they're doing what they're doing, Pablo Picasso. Mm-hmm. And then critics would respond and interact with that as well. Right. So, that kind of close r- relation between, I guess, what you might think of as elite art right. and the academy began to form in the 1800s and where critics would then champion certain artists like Ruskin championed the Pre-Raphaelites mm-hmm. and kind of made them famous. When does popular 
criticism emerge as a form. Newspaper criticism, people writing criticism yeah. almost as its own art form. I think that you, I mean, you see it as early as the printing press starts spitting out enough production that you have magazines and articles. So, you would like have the poets who would be responding to other poets, like you have the criticism of Shakespeare that somebody wrote, that upstart crow. Mm-hmm. But really with Addison and Steele, those sorts of guys. Who were Addison and Steele? They were 1700s magazine writers. They were essayists. And so, that's where you would kind of see the birth of the casual essay too. Mm-hmm. But they would publish criticisms of things that had been written and ways of thinking about the world. And those would slowly develop and form other magazines. So, really in the 1700s, but by the time you get to eight, the 1800s, and people realized these could sell. So, you would have Poe who was writing for things like that. Right. Um, you can find Poe's critical essays on Hawthorne. And, yeah. But and, I would say that's really where you can trace it back to is the birth of the journal mm-hmm. and what would become the magazine. As soon as, you know, you re- people realized there was a market for people beyond academics wanting to read these things, then you would start producing them for the layman too. Mm-hmm. And you would have all sorts of, you would have those that would appeal to the crasser layman, those that would appeal to the workman, those that would appeal to the um, person who thinks he's uh, um, a gentleman, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things, you know. And so, yeah, all sorts of different varieties of it, developing different tastes of different classes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was always founded in class, like all these tastes were always founded in like, where did you come from? And what did you have access to and stuff like that? You can't divorce any of that from that sort of thinking as Mm -hmm. well. And so, we're looking at even though these are dominant theories that shape the way that people understand and look at literature today, we're actually looking at a very small train of thought like that would only be accessible to those who cared to participate in literary criticism at the time, which would have been a small subset. Mm-hmm. It's not like this was a huge thing. People there would have had more access to like the poetry that Keats and those guys wrote. And if there was any of what they were trying to do with literature in that then it would shape their sensibilities. Right. Like Poe's another example. He wrote a lot of essays about what he thought literature should do. Mm -hmm. Some of them very useful and helpful. I'd say his essays on what he tried to do are actually probably better works of art than a lot of what he did. I agree with that. Yeah. And so, he would do a lot of that work. But again, what are most people getting access to? It would be their actual just work. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what we see today too. Like most people don't care who Derrida is. Right. But they are getting Derridian theories, like if they watch an HBO show, I'm sure that some of the creators on those shows are steeped in literary criticism and thinking that, you know, if you just analyze, like The Sopranos, mm-hmm. like if you just analyze it carefully, there's so much to do, there's so much to see. Mm-hmm. But the main populace, they don't care. So, we're looking at something that's very narrow, the, what literary criticism is. And so, it grows out of those poets who were always, you know, they've always, the, those sorts of high-end artists or elite artists, or whatever you want to call them. They've always been closely connected to the academy, or closely connected to people. So, Coleridge, for example, was a romantic, Mm -hmm. who was also a a professor and a teacher. And he helped both champion romanticism, fight against romanticism a little bit as well. Ruskin with the Pre-Raphaelites, Matthew Arnold with kind of the Victorian literature that would happen at the time. My point being that those two forces helped shape this stuff, but for most people... It wasn't that important. Well, what about for a a populist artist like, say, Charles Dickens? Is he going to see himself as part of a school, as someone who's trying to adhere to certain rules, certain theories, or is he just doing what he's doing and people well, pay him for it? I think for guys it? like that, he would be interested in what other artists have done, right? He would be interested in seeing how he relates to other novelists mm-hmm. and what they've done here. So, like filmmakers, you know. That person's doing something pretty cool that I like. And those are sort of, so in that field, it would be more innovation, mm-hmm. not so much thinking about how theory relates to what you are creating. And so, no surprise that it wasn't. So you had the university professors that were looking at the history of literature and also arguing about taste and Kantian ethics and all that with literature. But until you get to like Oscar Wilde was kind of getting close to this with. Mm-hmm. You know, his he was both kind of a critic and a writer at the same time. And so, he had the development of wit and careful construction of words. But really, it's not until you get to the modernists mm-hmm. that where you see some of them are the greatest critics of the time and literary theorists of the time, like T.S. Eliot and the greatest poet of the time, right. that you see this sort of close bonding of the art form with the theory. 
And you see how it changes everything too. Mm-hmm. We're actually probably going to do an episode on the wasteland and we can talk about this. Yeah. But it's like, as soon as you be- get guys who are speculating and thinking about like literature in that way, it changes what they do too. You get the modern art forms that we think of today. Like a lot of the postmodern authors like Beckett would also be speculating about postmodern literature. Mm-hmm. And so, they're trying to philosophize it. And so, it becomes a very phil- – philosophy and art become very closely bound together in mm-hmm. other words. Or theory and art, right? Yeah. And so, you can see how it kind of changes and affects things. I think it makes it less fun to be honest. Tolstoy was thinking about a lot of things but he really wasn't thinking about literary theory, mm-hmm. right? He was to an extent. Well, what's weird about Tolstoy is that it seems like he is thinking about – theory in general but he's not it's not literary theory it's like a a theory of life of history of and i guess what i'm trying to say is and i've kind of sketching that out for people there was that we're talking about a very specific creature which is literary criticism as it developed in the academy Mm -hmm. because if we're looking at those fields of study that's all that's what it is it's a university setting so something that's almost running parallel or underneath or yeah and it's not even informed by popular yeah and it's heavily influential on certain artists, but there are going to be outliers who don't like Charles Dickens and Matthew Arnold. They probably didn't think of each other much. Mm-hmm. So, and there will always be those outliers, but eventually Charles Dickens, even though he's not involved with literary theory, will have to be looked at by literary Subsumed. theory. Right. So, mm-hmm. literary theory will always look at those guys and try to fit them into this puzzle of what literature does. But a lot of those artists and stuff, even though you had the movements and things that were very tied to ways of thinking about literature. A lot of the great writers, like Jane Austen, wasn't thinking that way. I'm no. sure Charles Dickens really wasn't thinking that way. I don't really think that Tolstoy was thinking that way. Dostoevsky, not really either, right? So, even though he has that more more of that flavor. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, uh, yeah, I just want to trace out all the streams that are going to then lead to the movements that we'll be talking about in the next episode. So, cool. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end of this episode yeah so me and brandon are kind of making this up as we go along folks but i think we're going to do several maybe we should maybe what we should do is what do you think about this do some of this stuff because we this originally started with us wanting to do the wasteland just talk about the wasteland because it's a really famous thing that not a lot of people maybe have a good handle on some people might be intimidated by so maybe what we should do is talk through all this stuff and then circle back and for our final episode just do the wasteland sounds good not that it necessarily sums up everything but it's interesting and And it all kind of starts with the wasteland yeah so yeah exactly all right well brendan you're a great humanitarian so thank you uh why don't you i'm going to read off our patrons yeah real quick and why don't you say whether each one of these people should think globally or locally okay um so i'll say the patron and you say whether they should be more interested in the global or the local all right the great dichotomy as we know uh, by the way if you want to become a patron of the bookening go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening and by the way jake will be back he had to take a couple weeks off and me and brandon thought we'd do a fun little side trail into all this stuff so uh, we'll be back next week to start to talk sketch out some of the major terms and everything of uh, literary theory and all that and draw some of these threads together but bookening patrons let's Call them out real quick. Uh, Robert and Rod of the Lovebirds. Locally. Good. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Globally. Yeah. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Globally. Obviously. The World Needs Cigars. The Immortal Chelsea E. Locally. Yeah. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Uh, locally. Lily of the Valley. Globally. Yeah. Andrew and Esther of the Lovebirds. Locally. You sure? Globally. Yeah. The Keith Master. Locally. Yeah. David's Money Men Trucking. Globally. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Locally. Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Globally. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Locally. Consul Prime Adam. He's a consul, so globally. Yeah. Jeremy, the dark hooded Lord of Death. Locally. Yeah. <laughs> His purview is local. <laughs> Nathan, not me. Globally. Maya! Maya! Locally. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Uh, globally. Danny the Dude. Hmm. Locally. DJ Sammy G. Locally. He's got a DJ local. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Benny and Danny Tiberius. Uh, globally. Eric and Catherine from Beyond Window Breaks. Globally. Breaking all the global windows. Professor and Lady X. Locally. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan, lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan, I love you too. Locally. No Constructor. Locally. Mare Cheap. 
Locally. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Locally. Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Locally. Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Globally. Obviously. Rachel. Rachel. Locally. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Globally. Queen Kingetta. Globally. Return of the Jedediah. And, uh, like, uh, galactically. Yeah, well, there you go. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Globally. Timothy the Writer at Dawn. Locally. Eric and Kate, the camp champ kings who are warm and love bees. Oh, that's very local. Lovely. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Maddie, 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 Matt, man. We need him everywhere. Globally. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Locally. Tyler, the keeper of eternal darkness. Laura, the keeper of eternal light. Uh, they're local. Locally. <laughs> yeah. Cold Steel. Cody. Globally. Jacqueline, the librarian, barbarian. Globally. John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate. Well, Tom Bombadillo never goes anywhere, so locally. Saxophone Alex. Locally. Eli, the Scarlet Pilgrim. Globally, pilgrims don't stay put. No, the other saxophone, Alex, and dubstep Danny. Uh, globally. Ryan, the terror of Texas, and Eric of the cream and crimson who are stuck in the cold, please send cheese. <laughs> globally. Yeah, obviously, that's global. All right. Well, thank you, patrons, for supporting us. Once again, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the booking. We're going to be back with more literary theory, right, Brandon? That's right. Signs and signifiers. And ooh, ooh. Semiotics. Semi- I, I really do kind of enjoy semiotics. semiotics is fun. I'm looking yeah. forward to talking about that. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.